In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajil farajah. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, newest lecture on the topic of the afterlife. First of all, allow me to begin by apologizing for the technical difficulties that we've had and the few minutes of delay that we've had. Um, the topic that we've started to address is the topic of the afterlife. And we began with a discussion of the importance of the topic and the importance of understanding it and um, understanding the repercussions that the answers to these important questions can have on our lives. The first discussion that we had concerned the worldview that you're supposed to have, which is based on the important existential questions that all human beings have. And we said that those questions have to do with where do we come from, why are we here, and where are we going? And the answers to those questions, they form the worldview. They form the idea of your place in the world and the manner in which you're going to interpret the world once you're in it. And it's going to have a direct repercussion on all of your actions. So any action that you perform as a human being from that point on is actually derived out of your worldview, out of the answers to the questions, the three existential important questions that uh, we said constitute your worldview. And then we discussed the importance of um, understanding the afterlife specifically because we said this is what's going to give direction and orientation to your life. You may know where you come from and you may know what you're doing here, but depending on what your idea is of what's waiting once you leave this world, then you're not going to be living in the same manner. This is something that will certainly change depending on, depending on the idea that you have about what's waiting for you after you leave this world. Once this idea of the importance of the afterlife and finding your own answer in a convincing way to the afterlife is well established, the next topic that we want to talk about is a topic that we're going to need for every aspect, every question, every part of the discussion around the afterlife. And this is a topic of the soul. So instead of addressing the topic of the soul every time we're going to talk about one dimension of the afterlife, we want to talk about it at the beginning and establish the existence of the soul. What is the soul? What do we mean by it? What's its nature? And once this is established, we don't need to come back to the topic again and again because we've already addressed it once and for all. And then we're going to simply refer to that discussion, which we have begun the last time we met. And so what we tried to do the last time we met was that we um, tried to present a first uh, argument on the notion of the existence of the soul. And we said 
one of the main arguments for the existence of the soul is that if you look at a human being, um, you will see that their life is constantly changing. And the body which makes them up is constantly changing. And the experiences they have as they go throughout life is constantly changing. So the question then becomes, if the body that makes you up is constantly changing, it's made up of cells that die and are replaced, and if the experiences that you have in life are constantly changing, what allows you to say at the end that you are still the same person? If everything that you're made up of is constantly changing. And the short answer to this question, this is where we said, this is what allows you, that which allows you to say that you are still one unit, what, that which allows you to bring all of your experiences into one unified whole, one singularity, that thing cannot be a physical entity because the physical entities are constantly changing themselves. And that includes every aspect of your body. So it cannot be something within your body. And if you look at yourself and the manner in which your body is built, this should become obvious enough that it cannot be something entirely physical. So it needs to be an entity that is beyond the body. So this is where we postulated the existence of something that is immaterial, which is the soul. So this allows us to say that there is a soul, the soul exists, and this opens the possibility that once we die, that soul can continue to exist because it is not the body. It is something distinct from the body. So that there is a soul and that that soul can exist independently of the body. And we said that this is also going to be, this soul is going to be constituting, making up your identity. So identity in both senses, as in that which bring you, brings you together as one I, when you refer to yourself as I, that's your identity. That's one. So the singularity, that which unifies all of your experience, all of your existence into one entity, that's your identity, that's one. And two, that which is truly you. And so when I ask, who are you really? Are you the body? Are you the soul? And what's the relationship between the body and the soul? We said that the answer to this question is that the truth is, and this may, you know, we confirm that looks are deceiving. When you look at a human being, you're seeing their body. But the truth is what you really are is your soul, not your body. And your body is that which helps the soul, allows the soul to exist in this world. The soul cannot function, cannot do anything. It, there is no meaning to speak of a soul in this world. There's no meaning to speak of the world, or the, of, the, of the soul in this world, if there is no body that accompanies it. Everything in this world has a dimension that is material. And for you to be able to interact with this world, you need a body. But that body is not you. That body allows your soul to exist. And therefore, once you pass away, once you die, at your expiration date, that which continues to live is the true you, not the body, not that which allowed you to function in this world. And so that's what we meant when we said that the soul is your identity in both senses, that which puts you all together, one, and two, who you truly are. What we wanted to do today is to continue with that discussion now by concentrating on another aspect of the soul. So now that we know that there is a soul and that that soul exists and continue to, can continue to exist without the body, 
Now we want to take the discussion to the next level and to talk about the nature of that soul. And we already started talking about that, but now we want to establish it specifically and directly, which is the soul is not material. It cannot be the body. So we kind of proved it by the negative, what it is not. This time we want to prove it by the positive and provide the proof of what we mean when we say the soul is not material. Why do we say that? So we want to look at this both from reason, from a rational argument, and we want to look at it from what the Holy Quran says about this topic. And as we said, you know, for someone who is just joining us now, what we said from the beginning is that, you know, it might be, um, it might be something that some people want to question because they want us to build our entire foundation of our entire belief system, the foundations of our belief system on reason alone. And as we said from the beginning, that's exactly what we've done. But where we're at in the, you know, the argumentation that we've provided, by now it should have become clear that there is a God that exists and that it is a personal God who has guided and helped humanity through teachings, which we call religion, through scripture and revelation. That's the message sent to humanity. And one of those messages is the Holy Quran. So because we've proved all of this already, through reason, we can rely on the Holy Quran as a valid uh, argument to add to the equation and to see this is what reason says, and this is also what the Holy Quran says. So we can, you know, take each one of these as its own separate argument or combine them together, which is that much more, uh, that much stronger as an argument. So the immateriality of the soul. Let's start with reason. The first point to discuss is that this is certainly uh, considered even in Islamic philosophy and Islamic studies and in studies in general and the philosophy of the mind where this is discussed usually. Um, this topic itself is considered an extremely complex topic. It's a very advanced and complex topic. And we're not claiming here that we're going to be you know, delving in detail about any of this. Volumes and volumes of very technical advanced works have been written on this. That's one. And two, the issue that uh, may arise here is that in order to simplify and present things as an introductory level, uh, obviously we're, we're kind of simplifying a lot of the arguments and a lot of the questions uh, and a lot of the examples that we're using. Of course, uh, the debate can get a lot more technical and more detailed if, if it were to be a lot more advanced, but that's not what we're trying to do here. So, you know, to keep things kind of very simple and at an introductory level, uh, we're presenting the examples and the, the main points in the, in the simplest format. So as a matter of introduction, when you look at yourself, when you look at your body, when you look at your hands, when you look at your feet, your face, if you look in a mirror, if you look at your body directly, you can start already seeing that you have access to a type of knowledge of your body that is direct, but is direct in the sense that you experience it, you perceive it through your senses. So you can see, for instance, the shape and the color and the size of your hands, for instance, or you can touch your hand or touch your hair and, and your feet. And uh, through the sense of touch, for instance, you can get a certain appreciation and certain knowledge of those states. And the same thing can be said about, uh, you know, your internal organs uh, inside your body. You would need to be able to have access to what's inside through a surgery or through, you know, a periscope or something of that sort. 
And that would allow you to uh, be able to see what's going on inside. Otherwise, if you're limited with your perception, let's say with your sight, for instance, you're not going to be able to see what's going on inside of you. So this is where you start seeing the ability, but also the limitation of your senses, your, your, uh, your perception and senses. And then if you continue to explore yourself and to look at, at who you are and that which makes up you, you also see that there are other parts of you that you access and you know about that, that uh, are within the reach of your knowledge, but which you are not getting to through those five senses that you have. You're not getting to them through your uh, sight or hearing or smell or touch or, or feeling. And this is, for instance, when you look at your emotions, your emotional, psychological states. You can feel yourself, for instance, uh, thinking or wanting something or your will, the fact that you have a will, the fact that you doubt, the fact that you exist, uh, the fact that you're angry or sad or hungry. Uh, all of these can be considered, some of them are uh, entirely and completely uh, psychological states, but many of them, they seem to have uh, a corporeal or bodily dimension to them as well. And so when you try to, or when you have that experience of knowing that aspect of your personality, that dimension of your personality, you're not getting to it through the senses. And this already tells you that even if you did not have those senses in place, if you did not have hearing and perception as in sight, uh, touch, feel, smell, you would still be able to experience those other dimensions of your personality, which tells you that you're not relying on your physical senses to be able to acquire that knowledge. That knowledge is being accessed, reached directly. You're directly having the experience of it's you who is angry or sad or that you're thinking or you're doubting or that you exist. This is a completely different type of knowledge than looking at your hand or feeling your hair, for instance. That you know that you're thinking right now is a completely different type of knowledge than, for instance, knowing that you have hair and what your hair feels like. And this is where you see that uh, the manner in which you access those dimensions of your being is different. That's one. And two, the possibility of doubting that one thing is or is not what it is, is going to change entirely. Because the access that you have in one of them is relying on your, is relying on your perception, on your senses, and in the other case, it is not. You're directly accessing that type of knowledge. The experience, there's no intermediary between you and the fact that you think, right? Whereas if you're feeling what your, the texture of your hair is, there is an intermediary between you and that feeling, which is your sense of touch. This is where you start seeing that, okay, there are dimensions, parts of your personality, which you are accessing directly. And other ones you're accessing through bodily senses, your empirical senses, your perception. And this is where you start seeing that there is a difference in the nature of that knowledge, one, and there's a difference in the object of the knowledge, right? So the object of knowledge in this case is, for instance, the feeling of thinking, the experience of thinking versus 
feeling the texture, texture of your hair. That's the object. The nature of that object is different. In one case, it is something entirely immaterial that you think, that you feel yourself thinking, that you experience yourself thinking is of an entirely different nature than the texture of your hair, that you know that you've experienced the texture of your hair by touching it. The nature of the object of knowledge, that which the knowledge is directed to, is different in those cases. And this is where, you know, we, we just say these things because we're going to refer to them later, but these are good examples of when we say that knowledge, and we've talked about this in the past, you can have knowledge of the thing itself directly to you, you can experience a thing directly or through an intermediary. When there's an intermediary to access knowledge, you're only getting an image of the knowledge that you recreate yourself. When you have a direct experience of the knowledge, it's not an image of the, of the object that you're getting, it's the thing itself that it's being directly experienced. Such as, for instance, that you know that you exist. Completely different than having an image. So in other words, having a notion that you understand of your own existence. In any case, so all of this said, we know there are parts of ourselves that we're accessing directly and other parts that we are accessing only through our sense perception. So what about that identity that we talked about? What about the I? When you say I, which one is it? When you think about who you truly are, would you be able to, would you be able to understand, comprehend, apprehend that I, that true identity of who you are without using any of those senses and without intermediary or is it going through an intermediary? Is it the type of knowledge which you can experience directly, your I, your identity, your, you as a subject and you experience your own existence? Are you experiencing that directly or through an intermediary? Do you only have an image of your I or do you experience your I when you say I? Is this an image of who you are? I'm not saying, can you create an image? That's another topic. You can create an image. You can create a notion of who you are. You can abstract yourself and create an image of it. But can, when you experience your eye directly, is it experienced directly or is it experienced through an intermediary? That's the question. And obviously to all human beings, and obviously to human beings, a normal human being, a functioning human being who does not have, let's say, uh, you know, some sort of psychosis or neurological problem or so on and so forth, you're experiencing the I directly and without an intermediary. You, in fact, are the I. It's not that you, the I is something and you is something else. And of course, once again, I'm, I'm referring to the I to simplify the discussion, your identity, right? That's what we're referring to, not the I or something else. Okay, so the next point. The I, as we said, is experienced, is being experienced, we can say by presence, directly, existentially. It's not through an image, okay? This is where you start seeing that you are made up of different parts. There's a part that is this body, and this body is apprehended, understood, accessed, 
through an intermediary, which is the rest of the body. And this is how you interact with the entire external world, including your body. And then there's a part of you that's not the body. And this is the part that you can access directly. And this is your I and all of its derivatives. Okay. The identity of the I, as we said, how do we know that this I is immaterial? One, these are, these are four quick answers. One, you're accessing it directly without a body. Two, to go back to what we said last time, it should be changing all the time because it is relying on, if it were material, it should be changing all the time because it's relying on material causes and a material infrastructure and foundation. And yet we see that it's always, always remaining the same. So it cannot be material. Otherwise, it would be subject to all the material changes. That's two. And if this point is not clear, we can come back to it. Inshallah, it's clear because that's all we talked about last time. Three. Three is that if you look at who you are, and this is a trait that is studied extensively in philosophy. We're summarizing it in a couple of words here. Things that are immaterial, things that are non-material, you cannot divide them. You can only divide something that is material, that has a material dimension to it. Only matter is divisible. And in fact, that's one of the definitions of matter. So if you take something such as who you are, can you divide it? You can't divide it. I can take a piece of string, I can take a piece of wood, and I can split it into halves. And it becomes two. You can really split it. You can combine it to other ones. You can split it into different parts, cut them up, and, and have completely different entities. But that's different from taking something that is immaterial. If I were to take, for instance, I tell you, how are you feeling? And you tell me I'm angry. Can you split that anger in two halves? Can't. Can you divide it up? No. Can you take your I, your, your experience of who you are, and split it up into different parts? No. It's one whole. You may decide to look at what angle. You can decide to look at what angle, one angle, one dimension, one part for an analysis purpose. I want to look at this part. I want to look at this part of the anger, this part of sadness, this part of thinking. But you can't actually split it up. You can't make it into different parts because it's one immaterial whole. And this is a trait of immaterial things. And this is why they're abstract and they're a little bit more difficult to kind of manipulate mentally. When you come to yourself, your true self, your I, is it possible to divvy it up this way, to divide it, or no? Short answer, you can't. You are one. You may decide to look at an angle, a dimension, a perspective of it, but the truth is it's one entity. It's one whole. You can't divvy it up and say, I'm going to put 20% here, I'm going to split it up and you know, 50%, 50%, for instance. you can't do that because it's not material. The last part is, even those things that belong to the eye, because they derive of something that is non-material, therefore, they are also non-material. 
And so this is kind of, you know, I wrote here weak. It's not in the sense that it's truly weak. It's kind of a technical argument that doesn't work for every, common everyday, you know, discussion and thinking. But it's a valid argument. You know, it has its, it's, it's a well-established proof in its place that those things that belong to, so the example that I gave is, for instance, taking your anger. Those are the things that derive out of your immaterial eye. There's the states of the eye, for instance, all your psychological states, your sadness, your anger, your will, that you have a will. Is your will divisible into parts? No, it's a will. That's all it is. You can't make it into kind of two halves. You put one half here and one, as you could, for instance, any material entity. And this is how you know that it's not a material thing. And so all the things that belong to the immaterial entity are also immaterial. Okay? So these are four kind of biggish arguments, classic arguments, when you study this topic that are presented, that I thought I would share with you to make sure that they're well understood. Okay? Now, in addition to everything we said, because this is, I know that this sounds like a little bit of a, it's abstract, but this is the, the nature of this topic. It's a very philosophical topic, and that's the nature of an immaterial notional topic. In addition to this, there are other arguments that are sometimes mentioned for the existence of the soul and to prove that the soul is not material. These are some of them. Some of these we've discussed very quickly in the past with some of you, those who have been following along uh, over the past couple of years. And if you guys are interested, we can certainly, maybe not today, so that we finish quickly, but these are topics that we can explore. Maybe next time we can bring some examples, some notions, some stories around each one of these or all of them, and there are others that fall under this general category. But these are human phenomena. These are activities that are experienced by some or most or all humans, depending on which one we're talking about which are indications. They should open our eyes and our minds to the fact that there is more to us than just this body. And to put it in more materialist terms, new materialist terms, there is more to you than your physical brain. You are more than just the, they call it the gray matter in your cranium. You're more than just the chemical interactions going on inside the mass inside your skull, which is the claim of those who want to reject the existence of the soul. And these are examples that there is more to you than just the matter and the body. So one example, for instance, is, the, and each one of these, as I said, entire volumes are written about this and we can talk about it for you know, a very long time, but very quickly. Dreams. What are dreams supposed to be? What do they represent? Some of it, 100% is just fluff. It's basically your mind going through everything that it experiences and sorting stuff out when you sleep. And so you get some of those images. So a lot of it doesn't mean anything. But not all of it means nothing. Some of it means something. And perhaps many of you, many of those listening and watching right now, other people, you know, you dream something and then the same thing that you dreamt exactly as you dreamt it happens the next day. 
in detail and you remember and you know someone may or may not question I will tell them I know what I saw and this is the difference between you know the the direct experiencing of something because you experienced it yourself and we're not saying that this is a valid or not argument for others but for you who experienced something in your dream you saw things from the past or the future or happening elsewhere in the world and then you're told about it and it reconfirms what you saw this is happening all the time there are countless not hundreds not thousands a lot more stories related to dreams and i think it would be too kind of cheap to say we dismiss all of it all of these people are delusional and lying and they just ate too much before sleeping and they're seeing things no we have to get to the bottom of it and there are people who have made a, a livelihood just from this topic Okay, and then, of course, if you add our religious component to this, and we know that there is validity. The, even the Holy Quran, we have, read the beginning of the story of Prophet Yusuf, السلام, he begins with a dream. The whole story begins with the dream that he has when he sees the sun and the moon and the planets performing a sujood in front of him. Right? And his father tells him, don't tell. And then at the end of the story, Prophet Yusuf, السلام, that when the the, the story goes on in the Holy Quran. It tells us that people are coming to Prophet Yusuf specifically to ask him to interpret dreams. Also, there is a meaning to the dreams, but you need someone like Prophet Yusuf to tell you what it truly means. And so the people who were in the, in the jail with him, in the prison with him, when they dreamt they were telling each other what they were dreaming, Prophet Yusuf told them, as for you, you're going to go out. You're going to be released from jail. And as for you, you're going to die. And then when they left, a while later, they heard about the king who's asking everyone, who is asking those counselors around him, I've dreamt something I want. Some, I know this dream means something. I need someone to explain it to me. I'm seeing these really skinny cows eating the fat cows, and I don't understand what's going on. I need someone. They told them at the end, they told them, oh, you're just you know, you're delusional. These are meaningless dreams. They're meaningless. Don't worry about it. He said, no, no, I know this dream means something. Find me someone. And so the, the one who had re was released, he remembered that there is a man in jail who was able to interpret dreams in an amazing way. So he said, there, there is someone who will tell you what this dream means. I'll go get him. You have to let me go to, to, to the prison and get him out. And Prophet Yusuf interprets that dream. He tells him that you're going to have to store as much of the food that you have because you're going to have seven really difficult years of famine and misery. So the only thing you can eat is whatever you stored. That's what the interpretation of the dream is. Those are the difficult years eating what you stored from the fat cows. The, the, these are the years where you stored the food, you were wise. They wouldn't have known that. This is not delusion. This is reality. That king had now access to a type of knowledge that came to him through a dream. We can't just dismiss all the dreams. And then at the very end of the story, when the family of Prophet Yusuf enter Egypt and they come to him, he tells his father, who is also a prophet, he tells him, now I understand. See, he understood all the other dreams. But now he told him, this is the interpretation of my dream when I was a child. And I told you that I saw the planets and the moon and the sun prostrating to me, it's now because when they entered they saluted him. So these are my brothers and this is you and this is my mother and 
this is the interpretation of my dream. And inshallah, one day we can really get into that story. And we talk about that whole topic of dreams and its importance and how do we view it Islamically and so on and so forth. But all of this is what? Is this really all explainable through what's going on in, inside your cranium? Or is it a part of you that seems to have access to another type of knowledge? Your soul is sensitive to other things, other types of knowledge that come to it through another format than the one you are accustomed to when you're awake, which is when you're asleep. And this is what happens with a lot of other prophets. This is one type of revelation. For prophets, one way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals to them is through dreams. For normal people, you never know. Is the dream true? Not. But for prophets, it's always true. If they see something, this is a message from God and they know this. This is one of the pathways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses to communicate with humanity. And that's the story with the dream of Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam and his son. And we have many others. The Holy Quran refers to dreams that the Holy Prophet saw. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet, you know, we make you see things in, in your dreams. So this is a big topic that inshallah we can discuss in more detail. The only point we're trying to make right now is to say that, you know, at times we may dismiss all of this, but this is an important topic and very important specifically when we want to link it to the existence of the soul. And, you know, you may not want to call it the soul because people have a stigma with the word, but there's certainly something non-material, non-physical going on here that allows a human being to access things beyond, you know, what you should be able to access just with your material body. There's something else going on that gives you access to the future, to the past, to something else going on somewhere else in the world that gives you an alternative version of what you're supposed to do. What is all of this? It can't be explained with the chemical reactions in the brain. And then you add to that, you know, premonitions, near-death experiences, all of that, they fall, I could say, in the same category. Okay? So there's a sensitivity that you have. And of course, some human beings have a lot more of it than others. And that's a, another topic to, to keep in mind. Then you have everything related to the placebo effect or the nocebo effect, which is if you actually believe something enough, for instance, if you take something and you, you really believe that, you know, if I drink this or I take this pill or I do this, then it's going to be really good for me. For instance, if I have a headache and I take this pill, the headache is going to go away. The problem is that sometimes what you're given is just a pill of sugar or an em empty powder is just flour and the headache goes away. How? If it's entirely based on the material chemical stuff going on, the headache should not go away. There is a cause and effect. The substance you took does not remove your headache, does not numb you enough to make you not feel the headache. So why did the headache go away? Ah, oh, there's something more to you than just your brain and the chemical reactions going on in your body. And in this case, the easy answer that I would give you is this is those cases of mind over matter, mind over brain. The mind of you, the mind is not the brain. There is a brain and there's a mind. If you believe enough, and this opens the door to a whole lot of stuff. The strength of your mind. There's a strength that you have beyond what your body is capable of. 
So this is something to keep in mind. How can you use that in the best way? And then the opposite. If you, if you really feel something is very bad for you, when it's not. And there are so many studies on this. If you can convince someone that something is really bad for them, and then let's say they take a pill or they drink something and they really believe that, they don't know this is poisonous, this is toxic for them. They may actually go into convulsions and throw up and go into a seizure or whatever, depending on what they believe, entirely based on their belief, not based on what they took and the actual cause and effect relationship that should be happening, completely outside of that. So this is a nocebo effect. So this is a negative versus a positive, which is a placebo. And then you have hypnosis and you know the ability to basically get a human being to be in a completely different state and then be able to make them very open to suggestion and then use that to do things with them or use that to change their behavior, right? There's a whole lot of stuff. There's, you can use it for good, for bad, for entertainment. That opens the door too. But again, it tells you that there is more than just what you're seeing here. And then, you know, can you communicate with the souls of the deceased or not? That's a whole big topic. And there's a very big portion of humanity who believes that they have, that it is possible to communicate with the souls of the deceased. Divine graces and favors of the saints. And again, the examples abound that there are people that seem to have been given favors from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, abilities that go beyond what a body should be able to withstand or do. Okay? And then finally, anything related to the mind over matter practices of people who train spiritually, examples, yogis. You know, science will tell you if a human being is put under these conditions, they will die within three minutes or seven minutes or 11 minutes. And then you have someone who does it for, you know, six hours or two days or seven days. Okay? So what's going on there? What, are, what is the difference? What are these people doing differently? People who can control the, you know, the, the heartbeats, the heart rate, and, 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 things like that. Okay, so these are all examples that we can add to and in support of the idea that we are more than just the physical body and our mind is not just the physical brain, the, the, the matter inside our cranium. There's more. Now we want to turn to the Holy Quran. So, does the Quran say anything about the soul or not? Short answer so that we don't spend too much time on this. Short answer, yes, very open, very explicit. The Holy Quran is not ambiguous on the topic of the existence of the soul. So first of all, the existence of the human soul is explicitly mentioned in the Holy Quran. So we can't say this is one matter where you know, there's a lot of interpretation and we're not, no. It's very there, point blank, Black on white, very clear, the Holy Quran says a human being has a soul given to him by God. One. Two, when the Holy Quran talks about the human soul, it attributes it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a general rule of tafsir that inshallah one day we'll get to these very interesting principles that allow us to understand why the Holy Quran speaks in a certain way. The Holy Quran refers some things to God. When the truth is, if you really understand Tawheed, well, everything belongs to God. So everything should be referred to God, attributed to God. 
Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala attribute some things to him and not others? Why does it talk, for instance, about, why do we say, for instance, Baytullah, the house of God? Does God come in a specific house or is he in a specific place, for instance? Shahrullah, the month of Ramadan. Shahrullah, the month of God. Okay, so there is Khalilullah. There is someone who is the friend of God or Habibullah, someone who is the beloved of God or the lover of God, and so on and so forth. Or when the Holy Quran talks about a lot of things, including the soul. And it attributes it to himself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the soul is mine. Or as we will read in these verses, why? And the short answer to this is that when the Holy Quran does this, it's to show the honor of that thing. It's to show the status. All the things are equal in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah wants to highlight that there are things that are much more special than others. Yes, there are things that have been created. But from everything that has been created, Allah has given a special status to a time. Otherwise, time is all the same. They're just an accumulation of moments. Why is that time, why is that window of moments special and that one not? They're all the same. Uh, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided there's something happening here. Something happened here or is happening here that he wants you to know is special. So he's referring it back to himself. So if we read a couple of verses of the Quran related to this, in the first verse it says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who perfected everything he created and commenced and began the human's creation from clay. So here we are seeing the material creation of the human being. He began, he commenced the human's creation from clay. Then he made his progeny from an extraction of a lowly fluid. Okay, we're still in the material. Then he proportioned him. We're still in the material. And he breathed into him of his spirit and made for you the hearing, the sight, and the hearts. And that's why a lot of commentators here say, see the, the sequence, the manner in which the Quran puts the sequence of what's happening when. This is when you know when you are becoming a human being. In the womb, you were just a mass of matter, and at some point, the soul is breathed into you. And it's before you have your hearing and your sight and your, the abilities and the functions of your heart. Okay, So you've become a human being before but you're still in the womb. That's one interpretation here. But in any case, there is something happening to you as a human being that makes you human. And it's not saying that a human being doesn't have a body and all the functions that go with the body. But there is something more that you've been given. And this is, he breathed into you of his spirit. Okay? The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not say he breathed a soul, he breathed a spirit into him. He could say that. He says, no, I want you to know how special this is. You're different. Assuming that animals have souls, he doesn't say that about animals. The soul breathed into the animals, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't refer to it and attribute it to himself. He only says that about the human being, right? To, to remind you that you have been given something different. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlights that for you. In another verse it says, so what I have proportioned him, this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the angels about the creation of a human being. He tells them, so what I have proportioned him and breathed into him of my spirit, so now he's become a human being, 
then fall down in prostration before him. Not for the body, for the soul that has been put into him. Okay, let's continue. One more point that the Quran makes very clear is that you are different from your body. And this is what we tried to explain last time, and this is what we're going to see in a couple of verses. First one, they say, and this is, I think, the one that we, we, we alluded to last time, they say when we have been lost and we've disappeared in the dust, shall we be indeed created anew? Is it true that this is going to happen? Rather, they disbelieve in the encounter with the Lord, so the afterlife. Say you will be taken back or reclaimed, taken back fully, by the angel of death, the one charged with you. So the question is, who is taken back? What is taken back? It can't be the body, because as the Holy Quran itself is saying, the body has disintegrated into the ground, decomposed into the ground. And yet the, whole, the Holy Quran says, the angel is taking you back completely. He takes you back completely. The Malakul so you, you, whatever you are, is taken back entirely by the angel. So the you is not your body. The body is staying in the ground and decomposing. That's one verse. Another verse says, if you were to see when the wrongdoers on the throes of death and the angels extend their hands saying, give up your souls. So these are people and the angels are telling them, let's go, it's time to die. Give up your souls now. This day shall you receive your reward, a punishment of humiliation. So now it's the verse has moved, fast-forwarded to the future. So it's as though the verse has jumped into the afterlife. Now, what is humiliated? Your body? No, the body is not humiliated. It's a soul. It's an immaterial part of you that is going to be punished with humiliation because of what you used to do. And the last verse, and this one is very important, and inshallah, it's clear. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is in Surah Al-Zumar, He says, Allah takes back. Allahu yatawaffa. See the same how the, the Quran uses the, the terms very clearly. Allahu yatawaffa al-anfusa. Allah takes back or reclaims the souls at the time of their death. Okay. And then it adds, and those who have not died in their sleep. Allahu yatawaffa al-anfusa hina mawtiha wallati lam tamut fi manamiha Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes your soul at two times There's but two ways because the verse is going to explain how how they are different He takes your soul when you die Allah takes reclaims the souls at the time of their death and when you sleep He takes your soul What's the difference? The Quran continues. Then he retains those for whom he has ordained death. The souls for which he has decided that they have died. He keeps them. He retains them. And releases the others until a specified time. Which is the time of their death. So every time you go to sleep, your soul is being taken by Allah. If this is a sleep from which you're not supposed to wake up again, this is your specified time, Allah retains the soul. He keeps it. So it's not coming back to the body. The body is there. This is where I want you to... This verse is, is beautiful and full of teachings. Because, first of all, it says a lot about sleep. 
Secondly, it starts telling you that it's not that you're not alive. The Quran says the soul, your soul is being taken while you sleep. Well, anyone, a scientist, would come and look at you while you're asleep and they would say, you're alive. So the soul is not to give you life. And this is where we have to make that distinction. The soul is not to give you your biological functions. These Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you through other means, which may all be explained with materialistically, materially. You have the body and the way it functions. And the way it functions allows you to, chemically and biologically and physically, it allows you to exist as a living entity. But you still don't have a soul. And this is your difference with other beings. You have something that is being taken away from you when you sleep. What's the difference between you when you are asleep and when you are awake? That's what tells you this is what your soul is. It's not that your heart doesn't beat. If we're talking about that, this is just your biological soul. This is just your ability to kind of be a living matter. Okay, and that's another topic. But that's not the soul that we're talking about. Your awareness and your will and your thinking and your feelings, this is all stuff that you only have when you're awake. And if you have them when you're asleep, it brings us back to the topic of dreams, which again proves that you are there. It's just you're in a different world. You have access to different things. You're a world of souls, which gives you access to the dreams and the realities of that world. But you also have your brain here, which is sorting out what it's going through. And so you may see images too. Okay, and it's not an easy one to distinguish between what is what. But if you understand this verse, then you start seeing that, okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, every human being that goes to sleep is actually dying. If you understand death as giving up your soul to God. Every time you go to sleep, you are losing something. You are losing your ability to do anything with this body. And that's all death is. And that's giving up your soul. You are giving up something that you have outside of this body. It's going somewhere. Not maybe physically. But it stops to be able to act on this body. And then when you wake up, it means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed it to go back to the body. That's what the verse says. So now we reread it, see, see what, how much more you understand. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Arabic, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah yatawaffa as we said, was take back. Allah yatawaffa Though the ones which have not died in their sleep. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes it. Takes the soul. He holds back the ones upon which he has decreed death. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes or reclaims the souls at the time of their death and those who have not died in their sleep. So he takes them at two times. At the time of sleep and at the time of death, Allah reclaims the souls. Those that which have died, so then he retains those for whom he has ordained death he retains those souls. That's it. They're dead. They're not going back. And releases the others, the other souls. He lets them go back to the body. And he releases 
the others until a specified time, the time ordained for their death. There are indeed signs in that for people who reflect. Because a lot of people will hear this, but it won't do anything. And those who can really think, the Quran says, this is a sign, this is an ayah, this is a miracle, just like all the other miracles. It's just, do you have the ability to see it or not? And of course here, maybe one more quick point regarding this verse. So there is of course here a component to this verse that is moral or ethical for us. And, and our religion insists on this. It's always a constant reminder. There are ad'iyah, prayers, invocations that you're supposed to read every time you go to bed. Because you don't know. You're not supposed to feel entitled that you're going to wake up when you go to bed when you go to sleep. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if you're going to wake up again or not? And so this is supposed to become a constant reminder for you at a daily level. So it all depends on your level of awareness. And can you remind yourself on a daily level, on a daily basis, that death is just around the corner? Every time you're going to sleep, as the Quran says, you are dying. No different. But in this case, the soul is coming back, so you wake up. In that case, the soul doesn't come back, so you don't wake up. That's it. And again, as we said, this is where you see the difference between when what we're talking about, the soul we're talking about, is not just you know, what allows you to breathe and have biological function. We're talking about something specific, more than that. So, in conclusion, there is a soul between the lecture of last time and this time, inshallah, this part is clear that it exists. Secondly, that this is a, an entity that can exist without the body. This is something that's going to be very important for the afterlife, especially after here. You know, as it's one thing to say afterlife as in Yom Al-Qiyamah, which is this world has ceased to exist. There's no more this world and everyone and everything is in the other world. That's one afterlife. And the other one is the moment you die. That's another understanding of Yom Al-Qiyam. Because to you, once you've died, there's no going back. So that's it. You're, you're in the afterlife. Okay? So here, when we say, can it exist independently? Well, in this world, for sure, your body is underground. It's going to be another topic. Once we go to Yom Al-Qiyam, do you have a body or not? And inshallah, we're going to get to that. But the point is that the moment you die here and this body has decomposed, do you continue to exist or not? Yes, you do. You continue to exist. Regardless of what happens to your body, you continue to exist. So there is a part of you that is not material, that is not physical, and that is the part of you that the moment you die is going to continue to exist. Okay? And finally, this is what brings all of your experience together. This is what allows you to say that you are one, that you are I, that you were the same 30 years ago and now and into the future, that you are the same that when you were sad and when you were hungry and when you were, when you were angry. Okay, it's all the same entity, regardless of the variance of the experiences and regardless of the changes to your body. And this is who you truly are. This is your true identity. It's not the body. The body is just the tool that you have to interact with this world. And so take good care of it because you're stuck with it. 
The Solkin is absolutely useless and ineffectual and incapable of anything in this world without the body. Unless, you know, there's exceptions. Okay? So that was the, I think, the main points we wanted to cover for today. And inshallah, in the next time we meet, we're going to spend one more lecture, as we said, inshallah, to drill down into this topic. And I'll, I'll try to keep it shorter. But the idea is that we represent a lot of this but with some scientific quotes and from, you know, examples from science and what a lot of scientists have said and present both sides. So we want to validate, you know, I've made a lot of claims about, you know, people who say there is a soul or not and materialists and non-materialists. So I'll just bring some quotes and some, you know, some books. Maybe I'll see if I, I bring the actual books. There's a lot of them. Uh, and we can read some passages just to confirm the, the ideas and to kind of put you on that track if you want to look more into it for yourselves. Okay, so, you know, just as a reminder for, you know, people online and people attending here in person, as usual, and as of we've always done, the actual lecture part is done. So everybody is free to leave as soon as the, the lecture part is done. Once we're done the lecture part, it's an open discussion. Of course, we always prefer to keep it about the topic so that we make sure it's well understood. We can talk about anything and everything, but, uh, so at any time, you are free to leave so that, you know, people sometimes feel the lecture is too long. Uh, sometimes we go two hours and beyond. Uh, but the truth is usually it's not the lecture part that that's long. We open it up for discussion and Q&A. And, and so you're free to leave at any time once, uh, as soon as we are done with the lecture. So today the lecture was a little bit longer than planned, but inshallah, it was, uh, it was interesting and, uh, and uh, relevant to all of you. So the lecture is over. And uh, we can open it up for anyone online. Discussions, concerns, questions, please don't hesitate. And we begin with uh, the people who are here. Uh, but let's end the lecture with a salawat. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ala Tayyibina Tahirin. Yeah, so I know there's one question there. No, you know what about the afterlife? Yeah. Okay, so now you your body is like you're dead, but like you're alive. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? So, sorry, so I said something about the afterlife? Yeah. And I, and I said what? Which part is not clear? Like, uh, you know, I said, like, yeah, you're alive in one point, you're dead in another. What do, you, what do you mean by that? So all I meant to say is, in this world right now, we all exist in this world. If you, I don't know, you go back a thousand years, there are people who have been dying and who are dying all the time right now. So there are people who existed in this world, and we are of them. We exist right now, and we're going to die. And when we're going to die, there will be other people who are alive. So one question is, so what happens now? To the person who just died now, or they died 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, what happens to them now? Are they in the afterlife or not? That's... One question. And then the other one, that one is a lot simpler, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that there will be a point where He will end this world. When that happens, then there is no choice. Everybody is going to be taken into that new world. That's Yom Al-Qiyamah and after. So the first one, that's why I meant what I meant when I said. There's two ways of understanding afterlife when, when we're talking right now. 
One way to understand afterlife is the moment you hit death, the moment you die in this world, and between now and Yom Al-Qiyamah. That's an afterlife. But technically, the afterlife is only supposed to be that other world. So what happens between these two? So everybody agrees that there are people dying here, and everybody agrees that there will be a time when this world ends, and there will be an afterlife, a Yom Al-Qiyamah, and then Alam Al-Akhirah. And people, you know, are judged, and then they end up in heaven or hell, punishment or reward. So this is all afterlife 100%. What about this world? Short answer is, this is what we refer to as Barzakh. Alam al-Barzakh. So this is the intermediary. In Arabic, Barzakh means something in between. Literally, it means in between. So the world in between is the world between this life, when it ends for you, and the afterlife, when it begins for everyone. That part is, you are in Barzakh. The Barzakh is its own dimension and it's its own world. And it has its own rules and principles and laws that govern it. That are different from the ones of this world that we know, and they are different from the ones we have in the afterlife. Each one of these is a completely different world. With its own, you know, here we have gravity. In Alam al-Barzakh there is no gravity. <laughs> you know, it's a completely different world. And Alam al-Akhirah, afterlife, is a completely different world as well, with its own laws and, you know, principles that govern it. Does that clarify? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thank you. I have a question. Yeah. So, when we were talking about existential knowledge, I was wondering, is all existential knowledge part of the soul? Is that what, we're, is that what you were saying? Like, for example, I can directly feel my anger or my fear. Is that biological or is all existential knowledge part of the soul? Okay, so there's different ways to, to answer this question. The first one is um, knowledge itself is of the soul. Okay? When you have knowledge, that knowledge is resting with your soul. Okay? That's one point. Point two. Depending on what you know, depending on what you're talking about, the existential knowledge, yes, it is resting with your soul, but it doesn't mean that you can access it only through the soul. That you know that you're hungry, well, it's not your soul that's hungry, it's your body that's hungry. So obviously, there is a bodily component to that knowledge. Because it's your body that, this is a biological knowledge. But your soul knows that you are hungry. This is a different type of knowledge than I exist. But I'm trying to elevate you by one example at a time. So I mention hunger because it is and it isn't physical. Right? There's a physical component to it for sure. But if I take you one step higher and I think, I am thinking or I am doubting, Am I really here? I'm doubting. Well, my experience that I am doubting or my experience that I am thinking, this is of the soul, 100%. I exist. I can say my body exists, that's, that's maybe what I'm thinking. And of course, it's not words. None of these are words, okay? I don't want to make this into plays on words. That my body exists, one, or that I exist whatever the I is. I exist. 
This is of the soul. Entirely of the soul. I think, I exist, I doubt. This is of the soul. Could you do that entirely, any of it, without having a body? My short answer to this is no, you can't. Why? Because you're stuck in this world. And your soul can't do anything, including think, without the body, without the brain. If something were to happen to your brain, you may not be able to have that awareness. Okay? So that's why, yes, it is of the soul, but that soul in this world is stuck with a body. To function properly, you need the body. You need the brain. If something happens to the brain, that's it. You're, you cease to be able to do anything with that soul. That's the importance and that's the benefit and that's the necessity of having the body, having the brain, making sure that you know you have the right chemical balances, the right chemical hormonal physical interactions, and you know, all of that is there. It's not to take away of the importance and the necessity of anything physical, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary. But it's not sufficient. There's a, an ingredient missing. That's the soul. That's the ingredient. That's the soul. I don't know if I answered it clearly. Yeah, right, yeah, well. okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, so what does it mean when we say humans are made from clay? Because the ayah says uh, we were made from clay, then from a lowly fluid. So does that mean only Adam was made from a clay, or does that mean like it's a previous form that we have, or what does it mean? In short, it seems to mean that our initial creation starts from the matters of the earth because in this verse it says something in another verse it says something in another verse it says something in some verses there is min turab min teen uh, min there are a number of them mentioned long story short it's as though even the the matter that was used initially to create our species went through different phases, different, you know, uh, uh, stages. At some point, you know, uh, dry sand is different from clay or from, you know, wet sand or mud. So there's something going on here. What is it referring to exactly? One way, you know, you have a lot of scientists today who pride themselves on saying that Everything that exists today, including us, we are all made of stardust, right? That's what the scientists say today. Everything that we know is made up of stardust. Stars have, you know, come together under the forces of gravity, and then through the physical and chemical reactions that happen in them, at some point they blow up. And when they blow up, the particles that make them up go everywhere in the universe, including on Earth. And that's how planets are formed and other, you know, uh, astronomical bodies are formed, including Earth. And everything that exists on Earth is made up of the contents of the Earth. So, at some point, this is a, you know, magical, mysterious, fantastical idea for a human being to know that, you know what, me and the star were the same. We were made of the same, same content. So, to me, the verse is not that different from that idea. It's a constant reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we made you from that which is the most basic on this planet, which is dirt, which is sand, which is nothing. That 
that's what we created you of. And even in the next phase, it was a lowly fluid. You know, it's don't think for a second that you are something special. Except that, except that, I gave you of my soul. This is what makes you special. This is what makes you different. Okay? And all of this is from God. So don't be arrogant. So believe in God and obey God. That's that's the, the constant reminder there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always telling you. And there's another component which is more deep and philosophical, which is you are created from subject matter of this world. And this brings us back to the discussion of you know, last time. You live in this world. You are made from the substance of this world. You are here to develop this world. There is another part of you that will go on to exist later, but it's perfectly normal for you to be here, to feel at home here. This is where you were created. This is from what you were created. And this is what makes you feel the most natural. The Holy Quran says, From it we created you. And in it we shall return you. And from it we shall take you out again one more time. So there is always an emphasis on the fact that you are created from the subject matter, the, the materials of this world. And so long as you are here, you are here to build this world and live in this world. You are part of this world. You're not an angel made of light. You know, that's what I mean. You don't consider yourself you know, from another world. There is a part of you that is that. That I've... There is a part of you. But you're also here. Anchored here. Stable here. You feel at home. Naturally, you are here. Okay? I don't know if that answered, but... Inshallah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so sometimes the Quran says um, that uh, Isa a.s. was provided with Ruh al-Qudus. Is this related to the soul, or like is it um, something similar, or what's it talking about over here? It's a very, very interesting question. Uh, so the question is: the Holy Quran says that uh, Prophet Jesus, Prophet Isa salam, is supported by, is aided by Ruh al Qudus, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so is this the soul or not? I'm just going to refer to one quick. Um, I'm just going to refer to one quick narration from Imam Ali and we have it from a number of other Imams in a different level of detail. Basically, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created uh, a number of souls. And so all human beings have a soul. Okay, so this brings us back to the fact that you're a human being, you have a minimum that everybody has. That's what allows you to say, this is a human being, this is not. And then, in addition, in addition to that, in addition to that, human beings who have belief have been given another soul. Within belief, there are those who have a very high level of belief. They have been given another soul. From those, there are people, from among them, there are people who are saints. 
they have been given another soul. And there are people who are prophets and messengers, and they have been given, every time I'm saying another soul, as an, an additional soul, one more soul on top of the other one. And then you have the highest level, which is the Holy Prophet, who has another soul that is only and always with him. And he is with the Imams. That's what the, that narration says. And that narration would require, you know, a good commentary and thinking about, but in short, in short. It could be understood as, just to, so that we simplify it to ourselves, we could say that it's kind of like a matter of degree, but I'm going to argue that it's not. But let's start with this, the, the answer that it's a matter of degree. Okay? In the sense that there is a type of force that is given to you that gives you your humanity. And the more human you know how to become, the more you work on yourself, the more you are aided. And the Holy Quran talks about this at times. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for instance, He guides them with a light from Him. He gives them an additional light. Okay, so you do work, Allah helps you with more things. Okay, all of that is referred to as, in this narration, it's the soul. It's an additional soul. It's an additional faculty. What is the ability of the soul? What does it do? It allows you to, be ha to have more awareness. Right? It allows you to have more knowledge, more awareness, more sensitivity to what's going on around you. And all of that gives you more power. Okay? You can do more with those things. The more you work on your humanity, the more you are given. What I understand from this narration from Imam Ali is that it's not just a matter of degree. It's a degree, a degree means you're just adding more of it. To me, when the Imam is saying no, there are stages. You reach a certain point and then you move on to another stage. Which means the person at the lower stage will never understand what the person at the higher stage has. Because they're not there. Because this is a matter of quality. It's not quantity. It's not I have it and you have it, but you have more of it than me. That's one thing. It's a completely different thing when I say, you know, uh, you have strength and I have strength. But you can lift 200 pounds, I can lift 100. So I know what, what, what you're doing is just a lot more of what I'm doing. So, okay. And at some point I can appreciate, at some point I can't. Okay? Fine. But there's another version, another thing that you may have. You know, I may be blind, and you're not. This is not a matter of degree. It's not that you can see more than I can. It's that you can see and I can't. You have a faculty that I don't have. And to me, this narration of Ali, this is what it's saying. You reach a point, you're given something that the other person will never understand, unless they also get that faculty. Yeah. Can you repeat the narration? Sorry, the narration is that when the, uh, human beings have a soul, yeah. and then the believers have an additional soul, and then the saints have an additional one, and then the prophets and the messengers have another one, and then the holy prophet has one. And so, it's to me, there are parts of this, so one way to understand it is you work, the more you work on yourself, the more you are given. But there's also a part that maybe has to do with your duty. The prophets have a specific role to play in this world. It's not just random. 
You know, you may be able to reach a certain level of perfection on your own, and so you become the saint level, and you get that soul, okay? You get that ruh that comes to your aid, that comes to your support, that allows you to see the world differently, that gives you a certain type of wisdom and light that others don't have. Okay. But then, in order to be a prophet or a messenger, this is a completely different role. You're playing a social duty. You have a role to play within human history. It's, it's not a matter of like your own you know, human intelligence and all of that. There's a divine plan here. This is a completely different type of work. No matter who you are as just you, a human being, you can't really move to the level of what Allah subhanahu wa really wants from you at this time that will affect all of you know, human history. And this is where you may need that additional soul. You may need that additional faculty that is given to you because you've been divinely appointed. Allah gives you the appointment, He's giving you a responsibility, but He also gives you the tools that go with it. And in the case of the Holy Prophet, I would say it's the same thing. And again, why would Allah create this type of system? Well, in part, it is also to show the merits of these people. If everybody is equal and everybody is the same, then I would not know who's you know, who's who. And this is an honor that Allah bestows on these people that He shows to us glimpses and indications here and there of who they truly are. Right? The greatness of even the believer or the saint or the normal human being compared to, say, an animal. There's a difference here. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to show that. And so this is, I don't know the, to the extent to which we're answering the question, but uh, it's kind of like, I think it goes in that direction. Okay, alhamdulillah. Um, are there any questions on Facebook? No? Okay. Uh, on the chat, I'm not seeing any questions, and on the. No one is asking anything on Zoom, so I don't want to keep you up for too long. We've been going for an hour and 20. Any other questions, concerns, comments? And inshallah, next week we're going to go into present the last topic, as we said, related to the soul, and we'll wrap up the, 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 the discussion on it, and then we'll go back to the proofs for the afterlife. Why do we need an afterlife? Inshallah, we'll begin that. Yeah. Um, so just because it's something on my mind right yeah. now. Um, so in Ziyarat uh, Imam al-Hussein, it's referred to as Ruhallah. Yes. So is the author, as, as you said, is he trying to say because it's, it's, uh, it's special, we attribute, uh, we, attribute it, we attribute it to Allah, or is there a different meaning? Uh, so who are we referring to as Ruhullah? Uh, Isa. Isa yeah. So, yes, this is a... Isa salam is one of the highest... the prophets with the highest status. Okay, so... that, inshallah, one day we'll, we'll talk more about it. Uh, but there's a combination here. So the first one is because of his status and combine it with the hadith that we just said. That's one. Two, Isa salam has no father. So he is born into this world through some sort of direct intervention from, we are told, Jibra'il uh, the Archangel Gabriel. That combination makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refer to him as Ruhullah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to him as in his creation he says he is no different. 
So on the one side, when he wants to show that those who took him as a god, they were wrong. But you're also wrong in considering him just like everybody else. No, he is not a god. His creation was just like the creation of Adam says that in the Quran. In the Matal Isa and Allah, the example of Isa with God is the same as the example of Adam. He created him from dirt, right? From sand, and then he said to him, be and he was. So from that angle, the creation is very simple and easy for Allah Taala. On the other side, Allah Taala says, and I wanted to make him a miracle for humanity, for all of the world. He tells uh, Maryam It's a miracle for him and his mother, the fact that she is a virgin giving birth to a child and a child who is born in this way and then he talks as soon as he is born. This is a miracle too. So there is something here that's going on that's completely, you know, spiritual, immaterial that's going on and this is the reference. When, when he is referred to as Ruhullah. Yeah, there's more to be said, but that's the, the gist of it. Inshallah. It's a good question. They're all good questions. Okay, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa tahibin wa tahibin.